Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. All right. Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited to be here today with our esteemed colleague, none other than the brilliant and amazing co-author of Street Data, Dr. Jamila Dugan. Give it up. Alcine's dancing over here. (laughs) We're just super excited to spend some time really centering Jamila's voice, her stories, her perspectives, and then specifically digging into the traps and tropes framework that's in chapter two as just such a powerful matrix for disrupting the status quo, for becoming aware of the impediments to equity and school transformation. We just can't even wait for this conversation. Welcome, Dr. J. Hi. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So Dr. J, can you tell us, the listeners, how you came to be a co-author of Street Data and what was the origin story of you and Shane collaborating and making such beautiful history together? Well, I, first of all, I just have to say it's so crazy being back with you all because every time I'm with you, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so great. I feel like this is the most amazing group of people. So um, <laughs> it's nice to talk to you all. I just have to say that I'm happy to, to be here. But in terms of the collaboration with Shane, so really it feels like, I can't believe Shane, it's been all these years now. I feel like I used to say like, oh, just a little while ago, but now it's been quite a few years. We're coming up on eight years, I believe. <laughs> What? Is that right? Oh my goodness. I think we're coming up on eight years because I started my doctoral program at Cal in 2014. So really my good friend said, there's this woman I know she's working on this book around listening. I know you like that stuff. So maybe you all should connect. You like listening. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's cool. So Shane and I met and she was working on the listening leader. And I was really learning how to be a researcher at that point. And when she shared with me the book, she was like, do you think that that's like a good idea. And I was like, what? (laughs) So like, this is exactly what the field needs right now. This is amazing. So I said, yes, I would agree to do the research for the book. And that was really exciting. I felt like I really got a chance to engage in not only just the research for my dissertation, but real world stuff. And so that was really cool. But after that, we kind of had this collaboration start to blossom. And as we started to build out content together, we were really seeing a lot of traction with street data mm-hmm. in the field. So there was, it was this part of some of the workshop series we were doing. And I think at that time she was really noticing because she was doing a, a lot of training then noticing people really like this idea around street data. And so as we were talking, she was like, I, you know, I think people really might benefit from hearing some some more about this idea. So I'm going to just say this. I know this was not said before, but I was actually not really, I had not come into my confidence as a writer mm. at that point yet. And so Shane was like, let's totally write it together. And I was like, yeah, I am not really sure if I should write. And so to be honest, I am uh, the co-author of the book and I really am humbled by that. But really I felt good and ready to write chapter two. And then because of my experience with elementary, I felt really good about contributing to many of those examples and then really refining the ideas of the book. So that's how we came to this place that we are now. Isn't she always the leader pulling out the best in the people she collaborates with? I was so nervous. You remember that, Shane. I was so, so nervous. 
But you were born to be a writer and you knew that inside of you and I could see that and just hopefully created a little space for your voice to come out. So I love here, I love going back in time, little time warp <laughs> to how we came to know each other and just continue to be so grateful that our paths crossed and that I get to continue to learn and grow with you every time we talk. And the Traps and Tropes chapter, I mean, it's just such a revelation. Like, I feel like people read that where they encounter it in the magazine, right? There's an article folks may have read, ASCBEL magazine, came out a few months before the book, or they read it in the book. You know, people are just so floored and inspired. And I think it opens up worlds of possibility and consciousness. So talk to us about how that framework, that chapter came to be, what inspired you? Well, I mean, let's just be honest, Shane. Trapped in Tropes was a large extended rant. A, a long extended rant. So that's how it came to be. But in the most concrete sense, though, I had been working in schools for quite a while and I was working with leaders over the past few years then. And I was really immersed in schools and walking alongside leaders all the time, every day. And folks who were really, really committed to working toward equity. And I was also able to observe the impact when folks are not as committed, when they're servicely committed, or when they're unaware of the need to, to work toward equity overall. And, you know, it's hard to say that that I'm that's something I still observe, but I but in all honesty, that is what I was seeing. Folks were really committed all the way to people who didn't even know we needed to be working on this. And so before the real expansive work that I do now, I was running a pr principal preparation program and coaching leaders. And we were talking about what it meant to really be equity centered. And I had my own experience as well as a black woman leader, right? And what I experienced and what I observed having been in a school that was, you know, mostly, I always say a title one school because that triggers certain words, a title one school. I also worked at a high performing school and equity issues were at all of them, right? So I had been able to be in all these different contexts. And at this point in time, when Shane and I were talking about the work, I was really irritated and really tired around what I was seeing. I was seeing leaders who were exhausted. I was frustrated with the amount of movement that was not happening. Mm. And so one day I was talking to Shane and it just spilled out all over the place. Before I, I wrote the formal chapter, you know, you might have a rant and you're thinking about some ideas, but we sent the early ideas to educators to see what their thoughts were, mm, even on the book before it was the book. Oh. We sent it to educators all across roles and they were like, heck yeah, this is a thing. I and love that. So, mm -hmm. Yes, when they said this was a thing, it affirmed that this is something that needs to be written. And then I'll just say a tiny piece of that was also it was a time when my kids were experiencing some really difficult times. And so I was seeing the traps and tropes emerge at leader level, teacher level, and then in my own household. Mm. And it made sense to write it. Oh, girl. Yeah, I love the rant, like history of the chapter because we've been talking about that even recently just needing more space to rant unfettered unfiltered just to put out there what is on our hearts and minds to be able to generate the next thing that one wants to write about or think about or work towards so yeah it was a powerful rant and it definitely had the seeds of that chapter in it yeah they done messed with the wrong one and her babies that's what happened right like <laughs> 
seriously because we've all gone into schools and been like wait a minute so you're working toward equity right now but you just had an you had this powerful powerful professional learning where everybody talked about their bias but now you're going to instructional planning and you're not having that conversation wait wait what's what's happening there's no way we're going to build this we're not going to meld and make any movement if these are separate conversations i remember ranting about that or you know the experience of people asking me over and over hey do you want to be the person to lead this do you want to be the person to lead this and granted, many times I did. And I felt like at some points I should, but the fact that it was just assumed that I would be the person to lead certain things, just all of those if, different experiences. <laughs> heck yeah, they were messing with the wrong one, but they do that with our babies and educators all the time. Woo, girl, you said a word on that one. So keeping in this vein, feel free to rant however you want to in this <laughs> next question. We want to hear more of it or not, but uh, you know, I try not to tell Black women what to do. Um, highlight please if you will two traps or tropes that you feel are really showing up in the work right now and how would you cultivate awareness and building fluency to help teams get unstuck around that Yeah. So I really have been thinking about this. I think last, when 2020 was happening, I was talking a lot about doing equity with people's response to some of the unrest that was going on and trying to get initiatives going so quickly and not really Mm. thinking about it. But right now in the last year, especially I've been thinking about superficial equity and, and siloing equity. And I must say Mm. it is so nice to see so many commitments committed people trying to figure out how to do right by children. And I'm seeing a lot of commitments and a lot of realization sometimes that representation matters. And there's lots of Black Lives Matters posters and LGBTQ plus posters and everybody's included here posters, but I'm still going to classrooms and seeing Black students invisible at the same time. So when I think about this espouse commitment and folks saying representation matters, I've seen a lot of folks who have bought new curriculums with different books that are representative of the students. So great. But then the teachers are not trained on how to use that curriculum. And then it's superficial or the representation piece. I was just in a building and it breaks my heart. Austin and Shane to say this because I, I really appreciated working with this group of people, but they were talking so much about their commitment to working toward equity. And I went into this one teacher's classroom and she had all the beautiful posters I just talked about. And I was looking at the two black kids who she never called on in the class who never spoke a word in that class and when they went into the hallways it was like folks were scared of them to be honest with you Mm. and so here's this whole conversation right about representation and this really matters to us but it was really superficial and it was really hard for the leader to even talk to the to the teachers about that so I think superficial is one piece of it and then siloing is one that I was just thinking about uh yesterday actually because I was in a conversation um with a principal and again these are folks who are really committed to the work. I bring the traps and tropes up for awareness purposes of the landmines that are in front of us. They're already there that we mistakenly move into at times. So this principal was talking and she was saying, you know, she's really excited about the equity committee. Can I join it? And I was like, you know, I'd be interested. She was like, I was meeting with the equity committee. And right after that, I had a great meeting with my instructional team and we were talking about lesson planning. And so I was like, there it is (laughs) again, right? Where we see these as different discussions. And one new thing I I've been realizing around this is that when people are talking about working toward equity, it's become this thing around like we're talking actually about behavior. 
or we're Ooh. talking about listening to the black kids or we're talking about these like isolated things and we're not actually talking about shifting pedagogy and the entire experience which then creates the silos i was seeing that in real time so i think in terms of helping people cultivate awareness around this i think the first is like you should read the book and the chapter because we lay them out and there's yes. 10 and they're really yes. nice and clear and i i know that was a little tongue-in-cheek but i think yeah. you, the way we, we build awareness is by reading and having discussions discussions with other people about them. But after that, I am sold on fluency first. So you, you see that you want to move towards street data and you see a trap or trope that you want to go toward. Okay. Do not try to disrupt it until you really understand what that means, what it looks like in practice, how it relates to other issues in your building. And then after you have real deep fluency, meaning when I talk to anyone, they know what you're talking about, then you can start to think about how you really want to use street data to move out. Or you can use street data, to help you understand a little bit more about how the trap or trope is playing out, but fluency hundred percent. What does this look like? What does it mean? What does it not mean? All of those things. And then you can build capacity and then you can build expertise. Yeah. And I also wonder whether in your idea of fluency, you know, I'm all on the embodied thing where like your body knows if you have that twitch or the constriction when you're naming a thing or in your in a space that that's also a particular fluency that we need to start paying attention to, because that means that like something is off. And oftentimes we are just trained as educators. And I think we also need to put some context on it. Uh, the majority of the educators in our field right now are white women who are also need to learn what is that embodied thing that's coming up in between in those flash moments, right? Like it's so slight, but kids can pick up on it. The embodiment piece. And, and I've been trying to, the traps and tropes are such like a foundational small piece in order for us to get to embodiment. Like when we're saying build awareness around this, that's some deep work because the more that I have awareness of how I operate, the more I naturally embody as a to technically try to fix, okay, I know the traps and tropes. Now, how do I start to use the street data model? It's not that. It's how have I been operating in a way that's been interrupting or getting in the way of me really manifesting my dreams, I believe, around helping children thrive. What does that mm -hmm. look like? What does that look like with my team? Okay, I've done some reflection. Now I can be like literally a different person. So I, I so you caused a problem with bringing embodiment up because that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's such good stuff. I feel like we need another episode on that. And maybe we'll have you back do, for a third time. It's so deep. And I, I love the way you unpacked awareness fluency, building capacity. Because we know one of the biggest traps and tropes is that people, as you've said in the chapter, just want to do. They want to do the thing. They want to do the curriculum. They want to do the checklist. They want to do the do equity. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, I feel like this next question might be its own little micro trap or trope, but we're going to try it anyway, which is um, when you think about folks in the field using this matrix that you've laid out, what are your hopes how do you hope teams and leaders will engage with traps and tropes in ways that you know disrupt their current ways of operating? Yeah, so you actually gave me a, a thought around kind of how I've been receiving some of the excellence from elders and educators around me. So that mm -hmm. whole idea with fluency and capacity building and expertise comes from Zaretta Hammond. Mm -hmm. And what I really internalized from her work was exactly those three things I just said. Yeah. And that was from just being steeped in, like she has offered this 
how do I just sit with that idea over and over again and think about that in my work? I don't need to pick up every single idea from the scholars and educators that, that we know and look up to, but the thing that I pull out that feels really, really important and resonant is the one I wanna harp on. And so I think with the traps and tropes, there's 10, but maybe start with one. What is one that you wanna understand really well? Cause you can still move through the street data model. Having just focused on one, I have an obsession with focus and coherence. We can talk about that on a different day. <laughs> but I really recommend that people choose one or however much you, however many you can choose based on your capacity and expertise. Yeah or yeah. fluency. And then once you do that, there's a resource that I developed that maybe we can figure out how to share. I share it in a lot of workshops and training. There's a set of inquiry questions that I developed to help you when you are trying to climb out of them. So if you are thinking about um, equity warriors, right? Mm. There's a question that I have around who is at the table when you are thinking about who should do this work. You can sit with that question over and over again for pretty much everything that you are doing. Mm. And so I think that using inquiry, lines of inquiry with the um, traps and tropes, I think is really important. So that's what I would say about that. And then I know I feel like this sounds cliche as well. What I want people to do is really sit with, um, there's some terms at the end of that chapter, um, some vocabulary words that I really think people need to understand and sit with as well. Mm -hmm. Sit with the chapter and really, really, um, kind of examine it's the same way I feel about epistemology. And then as you begin to use the street data model, really the equity transformation cycle come back to the traps and tropes. Okay, we tried yeah. the listen phase yeah. of the equity transformation cycle. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the trap and trope that we said that we fall into. To what degree did we change or what to what degree did we do the same thing? All right, let's keep going yes. and then come back and do it over and over again. And I think if people really focus and center on that kind of cadence, that can be really helpful in terms of dis disrupting. And I, I think it can actually be really powerful and fun to see your evolution over time. I love that so much. And just real-time emergence, it was making me think about the uncover phase and how we could be even more intentional and systematic about bringing the fluency section in there and having folks apply like which of these concepts are showing up as you kind of like unearth the street data. What's there? What mirror is it pointing back to you about how anti-Black racism, settler colonialism, you know, implicit bias, these things are showing up in your system. So thank you for that. Mm. So you've been tweeting and talking and writing and tweeting, follow her on Twitter, about this concept of radical dreaming. And we had this particular experience where we're on the water and we're drinking wine and we're at the sunset in San Diego and we're having this kind of conversation about dreaming. And I think it both dropped on our heads and in our spirits around like how we were the embodiment of our ancestors' radical dream in that moment. Two Black women just enjoying a conversation. Our bodies were at rest. Our souls were thriving. So can you talk to us about the epistemology of this concept of radical dreaming and why you find it so compelling for education at this moment? all I want to think about ever. <laughs> and it's so funny, Austin, you know, we have a good friend, Estelle, and I just got off the phone with her a while ago, just doing that. We were just radically dreaming. I was like, we don't need an agenda. Let's just dream. And so much amazing stuff comes out of when we slow down and do that. But I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> so here's what I want to say about that. 
there has been a lot of opportunity for me to work with people around building fluency, as we mentioned, and to help people build awareness around what we can do differently to serve kids better. And I appreciate that work. I think it's needed work. And also my spirit and my elders and my community, we're on something like way over here. (laughs) And I've been in so many spaces where there's folks that are like, yes, this is really, really great. But I've kind of talked about these things and I feel like there's something more, right? Mm. Um, Something much more needs to happen. And so I've seen the barriers, but what I'm better at actually doing is thinking about what's possible. And so in the chapter, it says, see the barriers, imagine what's possible. That is my wheelhouse. And so I, I like to think about it like this. So many people have a notion around, so, you know, students will thrive, they'll do amazing work. And the way that that immediately gets translated, and I, I'm, I'm, it's okay if people feel this way, but it means going to college, or it means getting a really great job, or it means that they will build wealth, or it means, that means those kinds of things. But I've really been thinking about What's beyond that? Is that the goal? What's beyond that? What's beyond the river bend? (laughs) (laughs) A Disney movie. What's really beyond that? And my kids, the elders that I surround myself, Black women that um, I have been around have been stirring up something inside me around that. And so I've been choosing to read a lot about movements before us and tap into my own imagination and that of my kids. And it has been transformational. And so it's almost all that I'm thinking about. And so when you say like the epistemology of this, the first is that when I got Robin D. Kelly's Radical Dreams, he outlines through time how dreams have helped us out of some really, I mean, we think right now is hard. But imagine way back when, I'm not going to get into all the things that have happened to folks who have been minoritized or marginalized, but we know dreaming was huge. It is almost at the core of every social movement. And so I just want to clarify that I'm not talking about just daydreaming, which is also very important. I'm talking about the, the dream that comes from your soul that is about envisioning a future that we have never seen before, that we have never experienced. And from Studio B, I love that they say we have uh, a system that's built on somebody's wicked imagination. What about our imagination? If I was going to just let it loose, what would be true? And so my son has given me a lot of concrete ideas about this. And I've been trying to manifest, you know, my own cultural practices. Ooh, whenever I do pouring, you know, out libations for the ancestors, that does something to my spirit. It makes me want to dream a little bit more. When I'm talking to Alcine or Estelle or my friends, Amber, you know, when we're talking and they start getting off on what they're thinking about, ooh, it makes me want to dream a little bit more, right? When I start looking at the folks that inspire me, folks who are not in education at all, oh, and people in uh, education, shout out to Chris Emden, who was on the first episode, like he'd be talking about dream culture. When I start hearing him get off on that kind of stuff, start spitting it like a rapper kind of, yes, yes. you know, then I'm like, oh man, there's so much more. So I think the epistemology really is a collection of elders, ancestors, movements, and then what I have been called to do in life, which is to see what is possible. And I've had a lot of opportunities to kind of manifest some of that. So that's where it comes from. I don't even know where to go from there. <laughs> Both Shane and I are stunned <laughs> into not. silence right we're now. Not. No, we're not. <laughs> That was beautiful, Jamila. I'm I'm so inspired by your following your heart around this, you know, thread of imagination and possibility and just 
can't wait to see all the places it continues to blossom. And you talked a little bit about this in the last segment, but if you could continue to kind of riff off your radical dreams for the next generation of education. Like I know you've had a lot of conversations with Kingston G about this. What do you dream what do you imagine is possible? And how is that connected to your own ways of knowing and being as a Black woman? I think that's a great question and a big one, right? Because everyone who's listening, this is my dream that I'm sharing. And it is a bit vulnerable to share it. And I hope that folks understand that it is my dream in the current moment. Those things should evolve. They Mm. do evolve. And so I feel a little bit like, okay, I'm going to share this with the world a little bit. So let me just back up and say that a little while ago, I have I have it on my, my board here to consistently ask myself, what does it actively mean to freedom dream and who am I dreaming with? That was my primary dream, if you will, was to ask my, to give myself permission to be thinking about mm. that consistently so that I could have an answer to the question that you just asked me. Something that came along with that is when I was asking that this workshop kind of came out for me that said I needed to provide people a space to radically dream and that would inspire me and it would inspire them. In this workshop, we defined radical dreaming first, what it really meant, and then we tried it on. And when we tried it on, here's what I could have said to people about coming back to school. I could have said, what is your vision for the new school year? I could have said that. Or I could have said, what are we going to do to make sure every single kid meets the standards? that we have set. Or I could have said, what are we gonna make sure, this is all like, you know, this could be visionary stuff. What are we gonna do to make sure every kid gets to college? But instead, what I did was I showed them a video, a small clip of Wakanda, and I showed them the person who designed Wakanda. And I said to them, we don't have Wakanda in real life, but we do have uh, Hannah Beekler who designed Wakanda. What if we were helping kids build the next Wakanda? What do we have to do then? If if our goal in the classroom is to make sure at any grade level, a kid has the next stepping stone so they can define and determine what their own Wakanda looks like and they have the skills to build it, then what happens? So in doing that activity, the level of rigor, the level of joy, the transformative ideas that came out of that question profoundly impacted me. And so now my radical dream is really that we completely reorient toward working toward a future together that's defined by us, for us, for us, by us, FUBU kind of a thing. And I mean that in whatever context you're in, because every context, every school has a different way that they're operating different groups of people there. What are we, what are our big dreams? Not the ones that someone told us that we wanted to have. My son right now, he believes that if he does the right research on shoes, he can figure out how to start doing a reselling company while he's in school. He can go on YouTube and figure that out right now. Why why not orient in school to helping him figure that out? Why, why can't we do that? Why can't we have kids? You know, my son gave me an idea for transforming assessment. And I thought to myself when he gave me this idea, like, why isn't school hearing his idea? My radical dream is that we're in a place where we're so future oriented, but so student centered that we are obsessed with trying to figure out, man, what do they want to do? What do we want to do together? And we are reorienting our pedagogy, our assessment and everything to make sure those things happen. And even when I say it, I just get so jazzed about it. You know, that's my radical dream. And and so I will, because I said, oh, he had this idea. Let me just tell you uh, uh, it really quick. So he said that assessment should change like this. He said assessment right now, assessment, you take a test or, you know, there's different things that you might do. He said, well, mom, everybody likes video games for the most part. So what needs to happen is that every kid should be responsible for developing a video 
game based on whatever whatever we are learning. They should have the opportunity to choose the things that they're interested in. And then they have to develop a video game. Why do I say video game? I know you don't necessarily think video games are the thing, but he said, because then they have to think through the rules and the way that a person needs to interact with the knowledge that they have built. And then it builds social connections because he, you have to teach the person how to play your game. And then he said they should be archived in the school so that you have every kid's video game. Yep. And now yep. you have a collection yep. of video yep. games built by children yep. based on their interests. And to get a kid to do that would take so much rigor, but your mind, your mind has yes. to be in the place of radical dreaming and imagine imagination. Yes. And if I could get to a place, if we get to a place where the idea that my son gave me was not just in my household and every other dream that a kid has is not just in their household, then my radical dream would be manifested. And that's how I think we would truly be on the path to liberation and freedom and, and an embodied, healthy, well group of, of humans on this planet. Wow. I don't think we were ready for that answer, were we, Shane? Amazing. There's a wonderful woman, Dr. Kosua Lassane. She is the epitome of a dream in real life, like the ancestors' wildest dreams. She put together this experience called Sisters in Education Circle, and her obsession is to design learning experiences, retreats, that are for Black women. That is her obsession, to think about what does a Black woman need to thrive, to sustain. And in her doing that, it has like changed my life. Her obsession, her radical dream around that has transformed. And then it just carries on, right? And so I think that when I say that the groups of women that I'm around, the elders that I'm around, being, you know, in company with Dr. Kosovo-Lassane or being around you all, it really forces you to say, I mean, clearly college is not the goal. Not to say you might not, not go, right? I'm not, not saying that. That's not it. It's my wellness. It's my abundance. It's my ability to give to other people, for other people to receive, for me to help others blossom, for me to blossom. It's so much more. Well, the way we thinking right now ain't going to get me there. So radical dreaming needs to be, be it. I, I could spend my entire year helping people do that. And I think it would be much more transformative. I'm already seeing the seeds from the workshop that we did come out in school. That's pretty amazing. And I wrote oh. about it, by the way, I don't know when this episode is coming out, but October EL magazine, education leadership magazine, ASCD October, I wrote about radical dreaming and I can't wait for it to come out. Oh, so good. I was just thinking about back to Maslow's hierarchy, which is an example we sometimes use when we're talking about Western and colonial epistemology ways of knowing. And I feel like how you described the kind of current goal or what supposedly success looks like, college, the great job, the wealth, it is really this incarceration of the imagination. And that is very much, I think, what we're constantly like reproducing classroom experiences and school structures toward this like, quote unquote, self-actualization that is so narrow in nature and so kind of one dimensional when children and adults are capable of so much more. And, you know, Shane has been thinking about this way longer in our Sydney Stone Brown. Sydney, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I have it here. And Transformation beyond greed. Yeah. And so even just thinking about how you talked about the dreaming and the impact it has on the folks you are in community with, either in real time when you're dreaming or when you start to work towards that dream, when you start to think about it more, when you start to move towards it in whichever way your next step is, I think about 
that, you know, she talks about the the teepee and how there's a hole in the top and it's not self-actualization unlike, you know, Maslow. It's what happens when you realize that you are of service to others. It's like you become more useful to all of us. And it I just stands. think about it expands. And that's it the whole expands. purpose of living, that your life should be so big and so abundant. And I'm not talking about living in a big mansion or driving that right. nice car, but your life should feel so abundant that folks can't help but be touched by it, moved by it, interact with it. You also preface this by saying that you wanted us to handle your dream with care. And I hope the listeners also remember to handle that dream with care because in the handling of it, even in the non-physical, even in the intangible or what we can't see, that also impacts your dreaming and my dreaming. So we have to hold, right? I learned that from my listening leader. How do we hold space? And so when you told us like, this is vulnerable, this is your dream, I immediately went into this mode of like, okay, let me hold this dream in my heart and listen to it with my whole being. So now when you say that, right, I'm going to talk about, hopefully I have an opportunity to, to say this later, but this is what you need to do if you're going to truly use the street data model. You see how you just talked about holding it? The mm-hmm. One of the trash and tropes I didn't write about is the tendency to like, yes, I heard you. That was really great. And now we're going to do this thing, right? But if we really, when we're listening, especially to kids and gathering street data, if we really hold hold what we heard and let it go into our bodies and allow it to help us dream. That's the only way I think think transformation will happen. If we try to be technical about it and like, yeah, she just shared her dream. That's really great. And everybody else share your dream, you know, in professional learning or in the classroom or all of that. And we don't hold it. It's not going to go where it needs to go. So I really appreciate you saying that. And I encourage two things for folks. A is please radically dream. It's so important and hear other people's dreams. Then there's more dreams and then it's just like multiplying all over the place, but to protect it, protect it, whether it's through the space that you carve out for yourself, whether it's sharing it with some people and not others, Girl. What, whatever we do, I, I just, I feel like that's a huge missing link right now is coming out and thinking what is beyond, okay, and then what's beyond that? And then, and then what's beyond that? And then what's beyond that? And then you might not have any idea how you're going to get there, but if you don't even ask yourself to do it, you're not going to go any. So thank you for that. Yeah. Dr. J, we have one more big question for you and then we're going to do a lightning round and wrap it up. All right. So I think that when you start dreaming, then you also start to make different choices about your time and your space and all of those good things. So talk to us about how you're navigating your own capacity and setting boundaries, which is not a dirty word, in the work and how hustle culture, air quotes, has become its own trap or trope. Yeah, really great question. And I have to preface it again by saying, I'm going to say some things, but I'm also like, doing well, then failing, doing well, then failing at, uh, at this. It's just the reality of it, but I'm, ta- I'm trying to take it the most serious I've ever have. Because if I say, once again, what does it mean to freedom dream and who am I dreaming with? Then I have to have space to do that. And I have to be able to be well in order to actually manifest said dream. So I'm, I'm trying to take it the most serious I've ever been. So I'll start by saying that the pandemic showed me that we run way too fast. Not everybody knows this. I failed out of high school when I was in 10th grade. And when my dad moved me to the Afrocentric school, he did. I turned around and I ran after that. I graduated college within three years and I've been going ever since. And then I had my lovely children. I went through a divorce super early in life. 
and handled my children for six years before my partner now. And I was running the whole time, did a dissertation, did all this, was a leadership coach, running multiple things and projects, you know, and that was normal to me. It was very normal for me to be running and other school leaders that I know it's normal to be running. I remember saying to to a principal, shout out to you if you you know who I'm talking about, but I told them you better be taking a 30 minute lunch every single day. And their boss emailed me and said, I can't believe you asked them to do that. That's unrealistic being in a school setting. And he was really serious. He was really serious. It was, it's normal to say, how dare you take a break because it's in service of kids. This is a real thing. It happens all the time and why I'm trying to take it so serious. And so the pandemic showed me that I run too fast. We run too fast. I was still working. My kids weren't out of school and my son started to fail miserably. Virtual learning was not working for him. And here I am. I'm like, I'm trying to finish this meeting. I'm trying to finish this meeting. I'm trying to do this thing. And he was falling apart. I had to stop. So that was Mm. the first just realization I had about running too fast. Mm. Me, but even in the last, you know, a couple of years, street data has like taken off. It's kind of crazy. I think Shane and I both feel this sometimes meetings back to back, little time to plan, exhaustion, parenting from a tired place, malnutrition Mm. happening, noticing in my body, like, oh man, I have a headache right now. Oh, cause you didn't eat. Ha ha ha. You didn't eat. And that was because I'm too busy. Oh, I'm too busy. I can't really do that right now. And I told everyone, you know, all these people, their external factor, like I have, if I don't finish just meaning then I can't, you know, and not realizing that, hey, if you don't eat, you're gonna get a headache. And if you get the headache, now you can't work in the same way that you were before. And so really thinking about my health, seriously, my mentor got really real with me and asked me to think about how continuing the way I was was going to help me manifest my radical dream. She was like, is this going to like help you do the thing you're trying to do? And I was like, "Mm, not really sure. And I really started to think about, it's not really going to be manifesting my ancestors' wildest dreams if I am, you know, helping all these people and people feel like they're blossoming, but I'm sick. A lot of black people don't make it a certain amount of years. It's a lot that happens with our health as a result of being tired and having additional stress. I can't, I can't model that for my kids. I can't do that. So now I'm adamant about being intentional. And what I have to answer your question about the hustle culture and trap and trope, it's a trap and trope to believe we cannot take care of ourselves. There's a reason why they have the oxygen mask thing on the airplane. That is a trap. If you think that you're going to sustain any sort of transformation leadership work and run your the whole way there, it's not going to happen. You're going to be tired. And if it doesn't show up now, it will show up later. Our body keeps score. And so I think it's a trap and trope to believe we can't take care of yourself. So now I reverse calendar. I just learned about this. Now I calendar lunch and a small break first. And instead of saying end of day, now it says you're done in all caps do not touch email and I've taken email off my phone because guess what we used to not respond to emails within 15 minutes we used to respond to them maybe a day or two now I respond within 48 hours and sometimes it's quicker that's okay unless somebody is dying it's probably going to be okay it might feel urgent but really what's urgent for me is manifesting this dream and then being available to you in the most healthy way so that we can do the work that we want to do and so I would say I'm getting away from the idea idea that we need to run, run, run and hustle, hustle, hustle and trying to be in a place of flow. And I just wanted to mention this when you 
uh, all asked me this question. There's this whole thing right now. Have you heard of quiet quitting? So this whole quiet quitting thing, I just want to name this is not quiet <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Can I, just, can I just say, this feels like a rant and I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> I just want to say this one thing about the quiet quitting thing. There's this whole <laughs> thing about like quiet quitting. I don't find the term useful. I am not quiet quitting at all. I believe in demanding excellence at all times in the work that we do. But excellence is not defined the same by everyone. It is, and it's, if I, I, if I'm going to be excellent, meaning I show up for you, I'm present for you. I'm paying attention to you. I'm listening to you. I'm holding you. I'm challenging you. I'm following up with you. I'm doing all those things. Then I need to have a little bit more space. So I just want to name, cause some people are going to be like, oh, she's talking about quiet quitting. I'm absolutely not. That term I don't find is helpful. I really think we have to have rest. I'm not even going to say the word balance rest. We have to have nutrition and we have to have space to take care of ourselves in the way that makes sense. Not my sheer will, because I can do so much stuff on a sheer will, but it doesn't last. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable. And truly, I think this last rant is going to be really helpful to a lot of listeners because so many people struggle with this, right? And you're just modeling another way of being in the world around work that is rooted in integrity and your dreams, what you're trying to accomplish. So I appreciate how specific you got around reverse calendar and these like techniques you're using, right? Or the the 30-minute lunch, the absurdity of a system declaring that leaders can't eat, right? I, I think we need to really like radically reframe this entire conversation. We're losing, we're bleeding principals and teachers across the country. We are bleeding leaders and educators all over the place and, you know, not cleaning up after ourselves. Funny story. I wanted to teach since I was five. And then like when I got to school, I was like, oh, I can't be a teacher because I never saw my teachers go to the bathroom when I was in elementary school. And I went at least one in, once an hour. So I was like, oh, I clearly can't be a teacher because teachers Aww. must be designed differently. Superhumans. Yes. But think about the it's fact sad. that like so many times as a teacher, you don't eat. And if you do eat, you got little hands. Miss, can I have, can I have? So you get like this square of your sandwich because you are generous. But like even that idea that like you don't take time to revitalize yourself with healthy food or water. Listen, y'all, this could be a whole other episode of Rant too. And I'm going to share a little story too, because we're all just like going off on tangents. I love it. So we are not investing in our people in education. Can we agree to that? We are not investing in our people. I'm going to tell a story. So my co-parent is this year a teacher on special assignment in Oakland Unified School District and was tasked with filling in at a large comprehensive high school that both my child and Jamila went to temporarily. I'll leave it unnamed for a music teacher for a music classroom that's unstaffed. And here's what he had to share. There are, were hella willing babies in that classroom, ready to roll, super excited. And you know what else there was? A whole bunch of resources, really cool musical equipment, all this stuff. And they cannot find a damn teacher for that class. There is no bench. There is nobody to staff it, right? So he and other people are filling in and these babies are just so sad and heartbroken because they want to learn music. And I just thought that was such a poignant metaphor for where we are in the field. We're filling the classrooms with stuff. This is probably another trapper trope, but we're not investing in the most important resource in the building, the educator, the teacher, right? We say in the book, who breathes life into learning. So mm. we, gotta, we got some rethinking to do. That makes me think of the tiny thing I was going to say, which was back to the like no ways of knowing and being. Well, I was very lucky as a teacher to have Anna Mae and Danielle and Megan Monroe, who I did, we did go to the bathroom. 
and we did take care of each other. And that's what the foundation I had was we did have lunch and we did get lunch for each other. And that is where I got to teach, right? With women, but you know, where heck yeah, we took care of each other, right? They, I mean, so many different things. We also used to sing and dance together, sing and Frankie Beverly Mays, all that we used to do, do those things. So I think we have to really pay attention and again, not fall into this trap or trope where we say people can't eat and instead listen to the people who do, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. take leadership for those people because then it shows you that it's actually possible to do that. And it is my hope that some of this, it's, it's, it's less about, about, you know, the broader world, but showing my children, hey, you can do really well. And also you can eat food and, and rest. And I hope that they carry that as opposed to what we're seeing kids do later in college, which is all night, you know, do I got to do this if I don't, you know, so I, I think that to your point, yeah. Shane, um, we take care of people, but we do have to follow the models. And I was very lucky to have uh, models of showing me how to take care of each other when I was a teacher. It's like a rare thing. It is That's beautiful. And this is the holism peace right our body spirit mind and heart are all connected yes cannot fragment compartmentalize or diminish Mm -hmm. the value of any one part of those or we're not going to be well this conversation well i could have this conversation for hours so we're going to (laughs) pause and we're going to go into our lightning round and then let you go so the first question we have for you in the lightning round are called to listen deeply to someone but what they have to say is triggering to you what's the first thing you do first of all breathe remember that this is a human with their experience this is a whole human with their experience listen intently and be ready for an an entry point affirmation Mm. challenge support to emerge be ready to be a warm demander if you need to but be ready to receive them then make sure you decompress and protect your peace after because i've learned a lot about that as well protect your peace take care of yourself afterward good stuff that was good good. on page was it 12 i think you said in the book Y'all defined community cultural wealth. So Shane's going to read this. Community cultural wealth is defined as an array of knowledges, skills, abilities, and contacts possessed and used by communities of color to survive and resist racism and other forms of oppression. Mm-hmm. So our lightning round question is, what is a practice or way of being that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression? Community, 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 mentors, elders, friends up the yin yang. That's what, that's who grounds me. I'm supported by black excellence all the time. When I have a question, I seek my elders advice. I seek those who have done the work and who spiritually ground me. And I live and breathe community. I have many degrees, but my pedigree and expertise actually comes from legacy. Uh, Those around me, my aunt right now. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. My aunt Sherry, she is a, she is an executive, has been executive at Wells Fargo. She just retired and she became a campus monitor and parent liaison right now. And we're just talking about her experience doing that. I just can talk to her. I can talk to so many different people. So I would say community to be at the feet of those who have come before me Mm. is a practice and and something that's deeply rooted in the black community is Mm -hmm. to to be at the feet of elders, Elders, those who are smarter than you. Beautiful. What is one form of street data you believe every educator should gather? Daily instructional experiences of students. Please make sure folks, daily instructional 
experiences of kids. I do want to hear about the overall sense of community in the school, but you can make change really quick based on their instructional experience. How did this lesson impact the student and what would they change tomorrow? Same for PD, then change it quickly and do it again over and over. But the daily instructional experience, I think is something that we can do really fast and make a lot of change. Oh, that's so good. So what's the type of data that you feel is overused? Yeah, it's going to seem so like against like what we say, but I'm going to give context. So right now I feel like listening campaigns are overused and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Not because I don't believe in them. I do, but I'm very concerned with the amount of listening that is being done and the lack of action, especially with the amount of listening that's happening with black kids. I know so many schools focus on black kids right now. So many schools and there's no radical dreaming aligned with the listening that's happening. So yeah, you just listen and you heard them say they don't feel like they belong or, you know, they want more people that look like them, but then you added posters to the wall or you added advisory, but you didn't shift any pedagogy or overall experience. And so, you know, you listened and that's really great. And I think we should, but I I'm feeling like it's overused because I'm still seeing people boomerang back and try to like mm. do their way out of it. And I, I'll see you brought up earlier, the like embodying and the holding, I would prefer like, if you're going to do a listening campaign, do it with depth or just don't do it at all. And I, I know that sounds strange, but I really mean that. Do it with depth because mm-hmm. we're talking about transformation. Mm-hmm. Love that answer. Last mm-hmm. lightning round. What will a great learning experience create impact, make possible? Well, a great learning experience will change you today and tomorrow and forever more. It will change you. And not, it won't be where you think about how you might one day. It will oh. change you that day. Oh, that's so good. Yes. You hit that out of the park. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Dr. Jamila Dugan, you are a guiding light in the field. I am so, so grateful and touched to be your partner and collaborator in this work and to have you on today for our second time. And we're going to bring you back until we convince you to co-host with us someday. Right. <laughs> when right. when it when it fits with your radical dream, don't worry. This was yes. wonderful. I'm so grateful. Asking any closing words before we sign off? No. Other than thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to your babies and bringing their wisdom to this conversation too and for listening to your elders and the folks that you are in community with because you are a conduit, you are a vessel and we are just beyond blessed to have you and be in community with you. Thank you. Thank you. It was so great to be with you all. And thank you, Kingston Gia, for inspiring me that mommy loves you. But I really appreciate it. It's great to talk with you all all the time. And let's just keep dreaming. You know, this podcast is a dream. Let's just keep dreaming. Yep. 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 All right. Take the rest of the day off. Okay. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you can. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Next week on Street Data Pod, 
I think every day the work that I do and the work that district leaders do across the United States when they work in small rural districts is really about helping kids feel valued, feel heard, to help them have the confidence to know that they can do those things that maybe nobody else in their family has ever done.